Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all today. Welcome to the guests who've joined us here today. Glad that you are here with us. Uh, Hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving weekend. Hope you were able to have enjoyable time with family or friends and spent some time uh, giving thanks uh, to God. Every good gift comes from Him. Amen. I am thankful uh, to be here, (laughs) to be uh, preaching today. I'm excited for that. It's been about a month uh, because of some sickness, so very thankful uh, to be here with you this morning and to be able to preach. Let's, let's pray as we turn our attention to God's Word, shall we? Lord God, we, we do give you thanks and praise this morning, and we thank you for your Word, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit, and Lord God, we ask and pray now that your Spirit would be at work, God, that you would move in us to strengthen and establish us in the faith, that you would build us up in faith, that you would encourage us from your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, like Stephen said, this is the end. Today, we finish our series in First Peter, exactly six months after we began. Uh, that's all, folks. So, uh, I... I have personally loved studying the book of First Peter, and I hope that you have been encouraged by it as I have. Uh, turn in your Bibles to chapter 5 of First Peter. We're looking at uh, verses 8 through 14 this morning. And in some ways, our text doesn't really need an introduction because it's such a well-known passage of Scripture. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We're in a a war with the spiritual forces of darkness. But I think there's another reason why this text doesn't really need an introduction, and that is because if you're a Christian, then you are already engaged in this conflict. You've experienced the attacks of the enemy, of the devil, firsthand. You are a soldier in Christ's army And you are fighting the forces of evil. So you already know, you already feel your need to stand firm in your faith by God's grace. That's our message this morning. Stand firm in your faith by God's grace, by the grace of God, by God's power. Now we're going to see three things in our text this morning. We're going to look at our enemy, God's encouragement, and Peter's final exhortation. And I want to just mention here at the beginning that I am focusing this, this is this passage, this truth is focused on Christians. It's written to believers, to disciples of Jesus Christ. Those who have repented of their sins, put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save them. The protection, the power, the promises, the encouragement that we're going to see in this text is for Christians. So that is who I'm speaking to today. If you have never done that, this is an open invitation for you to turn away from your sin, turn to to God through faith in Jesus Christ, and become a Christian. And hopefully you'll see some good encouragement for you to do so as we go through our text today. So, uh, let's jump right in. First, we see our enemy in suffering. 
be watchful and resist the devil firm in your faith. We see this in verses 8 through 9. Look there with me. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We have a powerful and deadly enemy, and so we must be watchful and resist him, firm in the faith. Like a soldier who's standing guard, we have to be vigilant, we have to be alert, we have to be clear-headed, we need to be watchful, continually in readiness. This, this is a warning to us to be spiritually alert. Now, of course, the reason that we need to be watchful is because our adversary, our enemy, the devil, is on the prowl looking to devour people's faith. The devil is a great enemy because of his subtlety, his power, his malice, and his diligence. He is like a lion. He prowls around. He is subtle, like a a lion sneaks up on their prey. The devil is dangerous because he's crafty, because he's subtle. He often attacks when we're distracted, when we're distracted by the normal routines of of life, when we let down our guard. Lions are also dangerous because they're strong. The devil is powerful. He roars in anger because he wants to cause you fear. Like a lion constantly looking for prey, the devil goes to and fro on the earth, Job 1.7. It's a picture of his constant diligence. The devil is dangerous because he is a restless evil. Lastly, the lion devours. He is dangerous because of his malice, because of his hatred. The devil seeks to destroy people like lions seek to devour prey. He wants to devour your faith and your soul. And he will cause as much misery and pain and suffering in your life that he can to that end. And if he can't devour your soul, he will do everything he can to make you miserable, ineffective, and unfruitful. He seeks nothing good for you. He promises good for you, but he's a liar. He wants to devour you, your faith, your joy, your family, your kids, the church, whatever he can. So how does the devil attack us? First, he uses lies and deceit. The devil undermines God's truth and our confidence in it, just like he did with Eve in the garden. Did God really say Isn't God holding out something good from you? Wouldn't it be better if you did what I'm telling you rather than what God has said to you? He wants us to disbelieve God and to trick us into thinking that sin is good and satisfying. And that leads to the second attack, temptation. The devil tempts us to sin. He wants us to disobey and dishonor God. And he tailors his temptations to each one of us based on our our age, based on our situation in life, based on our personality, all those sorts of of things. He plays on your desires and he makes sin look good and, and pleasant and satisfying to you. And then 
after we sin, he goes to this next strategy. He, he brings accusations. So first he, he, he makes sin look awesome and he wants you to do it and then you do it and he, as soon as you do, he immediately turns on you and brings shame and guilt and accusations. You're no good. You're not a Christian. You're such a failure. You're never going to get over this sin. So he gives these accusations and ultimately his, his worst accusation is accusing us before God of sin, right? Trying to bring us with him down into hell. So he accuses us. He wants to discourage us so that we give up trying to follow God. But in this text, Peter points to another strategy that the devil uses to attack our faith, and that is suffering. Peter reminds us of our real enemy when we are suffering for our faith. The hostility it, that, we're, that we're facing in the world, it's not just cultural or political. There are spiritual forces at work in the world, spiritual forces of evil at work, inspiring the hatred and the opposition and the rebellion and the immorality that we see around us. And the devil is called both the ruler and the god of this world, little g, John 12, 31, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Because the wicked obey him, Ephesians 2.2. 2. John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5.19. So the spiritual forces of evil attack us directly, but they also work through non-believers to bring about evil and suffering in the world. What this means is that at least some of our suffering is a direct result. It's caused by Satan and the devil, or his demons. Now we have to be cautious here because not all evil is caused by the devil. Much of it is just caused by our own sin or the sin of unbelievers. But even if the devil is not the cause of your suffering, you can be sure that the devil is always at work in your suffering to try to devour your faith. The devil is an opportunist. He's like a lion in that he will go for the injured animal. Now, how does the devil use suffering to try to devour our faith? He wants to cause us to doubt God, to give up seeking God's help, to give up trusting God, to give up following him. When we suffered, we, we are tempted to say, God doesn't care about me, or, or God doesn't have the power to do anything, or, or God isn't wise because he let this happen. Or God doesn't exist because he's not helping me. Sowing seeds of doubt in our suffering is one of the enemy's most powerful weapons against us. He wants us to doubt God's wisdom and goodness and faithfulness and love and presence and power in our life. See, the devil, he whispers to us in our suffering, where's your God now? Maybe he doesn't really love you after all. Why has he singled you out? Why do they have it so much easier? You can't rely on this God. These kinds of things can lead us to stop trusting and following God. We might not say it out loud. We might go through the motions of our faith, but practically speaking, that's what happens. See, the core attack in suffering, it's not on our bodies or our relationships or on our, our possessions. 
It's on our hearts. It's on our faith. Our battle is resisting the faith-devouring effects of doubt caused by our suffering. Our battle is holding firm our faith in God's character and promises and truth. Our battle is remaining faithful to God in obedience, gratitude, trust, and worship. So when you suffer, here's a couple of things that you can do to fight doubt. First, fight the devil's lies. Paul Tripp is famous for saying, no one talks to you more than you do, and he's absolutely right. You talk to yourself more than anyone else, so make sure that what you're telling yourself and what you're listening to is the truth of God and not the lies of the enemy. Second, count your blessings. A thankful heart is a strong defense to resist the temptation to doubt God's character. Why? Because it reminds us of God's faithfulness, his provision, his protection, his power, his grace in our life. I hope that this Thanksgiving weekend you spent time giving thanks to God. It strengthens our faith as well as as an act of worship to Him. So we have a dangerous and powerful enemy, so we have to be watchful, spiritually alert. The opposite is spiritual drowsiness. Rather than being alert, you're dozing off. You're asleep at your post like this guy. This is the Christian with little, if any, spiritual fire. Little, if any, concern about sin and holiness. They're just going about their lives like everybody else. God's perspective is rarely considered. Their spiritual drowsiness makes them vulnerable. Just like the sleepy soldier doesn't see the enemy coming, this keeps us from recognizing and resisting an attack on our faith. So don't let the devil catch you sleeping. Be watchful. But far from being afraid of such a powerful enemy, Peter tells Christians, resist him firm in your faith. Just like a a soldier is not to fear the enemy, but to fight. Not to retreat, but to resist. We are not to fear the devil, but to resist, to fight him. This verse is super encouraging because it gives us hope that resistance will be successful. Jesus has overcome the devil. And if we battle by faith, we will conquer in Christ's strength. Let me say that again. Jesus has conquered the devil. And so if we battle by faith, we will overcome, we will conquer in Christ's strength. We don't fight in our own strength, but by faith in Christ who dwells in us. So there's two mistakes to avoid, ignoring the devil and fearing him. We don't ignore the devil. We are watchful, but we don't fear the devil either. We resist him. Now to resist him means exactly what it sounds like. It is a determined stand against the devil in spiritual battle. How do you resist the devil? You do it by remaining firm in your faith. You do it by staying faithful to Jesus believing the truth rather than lies. So when you continue trusting and obeying God, you are resisting the devil. What are the things that we can do practically in order to remain firm in our faith so that we can resist the devil? Well, in practical terms, it means using all of the resources available to us, all of the means of God's grace that are available. Central to that is prayer. Jesus said to his disciples, watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. 
The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 26, 41. Amen. Anybody? The Bible says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Colossians 4, 2. We also use the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. Ephesians 6, 17. Do you know the word? Do you have verses at hand, at the ready, that you can address the common temptation to sin that you in particular face? Do you have truth at the ready to address the common lies that the devil feeds you in particular? Do you have the promises of God at the ready to address the common accusations of the devil? We use verbal rebuke of the enemy, Luke 10, 17 through 20 and Acts 16, 18. We use renewed righteousness, Ephesians 6, 14. We use the help of our fellow believers, Ephesians 6, 18. Who knows your struggle with sin and is praying for you and is encouraging you in the faith? That's what discipleship relationships are all about. We use the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, Ephesians 6, 16. When the devil attacks with lies and temptation and accusations, when he hits you with guilt and fear and discouragement and anger and impurity and doubt and all of these flaming arrows, they're blocked by faith. Faith in Christ and in his truth. Okay. You're sitting at your computer and a picture comes up and you are tempted to click on that. And the devil comes with a lie and says, if you click on this, this will bring you joy. This will make you happy. This will bring satisfaction. And you say, no, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at any girl. Job 31, 1. You say, no, if I look lustfully at a girl, I've already committed adultery with her in my heart, Matthew 5. You say, no, I am not under the power of the enemy any longer. I'm not under the dominion of sin and Satan any longer. I have a new master, Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 6. Do you see? You need specific truth to battle your specific temptations, whatever it is. And then if you do fall and the accusations come and and you hear, he's not going to forgive you, no. No, 1 John, or yeah, 1 John 1 9 says, if, if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to for, forgive me of my, my sin, cleanse me of all unrighteousness. You're not a Christian. No, God doesn't love you. No, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God promises to complete the work that he began in me. Do you see how you have to use the promises of God's word to battle the accusations of the devil? Do you see how the word of God and the shield of faith go hand in hand as we battle the devil? Do you see that? Do you ever wonder why the devil works so hard to keep you from reading God's word and from spending time in prayer? Why it's so difficult to gather your family for worship? 
Because the devil knows those things are powerful to resist him. Now, how do we resist such a powerful enemy as the devil and his demons? Because Christ has overcome the devil and the spirit of Christ dwells in every Christian. You overcome because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. Jesus conquered the devil in the wilderness and in his death and resurrection. The reason that the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. So you resist the devil, but not in your own strength, but but by, by the power of Christ who dwells in you. I want to anchor you there. Because when we battle a besetting sin, that sin in your life that you keep falling into again and again and again, you tend to think, I will never have victory. That's a lie. That is a lie, brother and sister. Defeat is not inevitable. Victory is possible because Christ dwells in you. His power is in you. We have to resist expecting that the devil will flee from us, James 4, 6, and we will grow in faith and holiness. Peter says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This encourages us here that we're not being singled out by God. All disciples are engaged in the same conflict. Even though we each have our own specific temptations and trials and tribulations in our life to go through. So our suffering is not a sign of God's absence. It's a sign that the world is not as God intended it to be. Moreover, it tells us the fight itself gives us evidence that we are no friend of Satan's. Do you understand? Like, if you know something of the fight against sin, something of the struggle to be holy, you're fighting against sin, you know something of hatred of sin inside of you, that's a good sign because you're no friend of Satan's. As J.C. Ryle puts it, the child of God has two great marks about him, and of these two we have one. He may be known by his inward warfare as well as by his inward peace. That's from the book Holiness. So we see these three truths in this first uh, two verses. Though the devil is powerful, defeat is not inevitable. Victory is possible in Christ. The fight is evidence that we are true disciples and we're not being singled out or abandoned by God. Rather, God is present with us and at work powerfully and that's what we see next. We see God's encouragement in suffering. The God of all grace will himself act. There are four powerful encouragements in verses 10 and 11. Look there with me. It says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. These two verses are full of encouragement that we need to believe. That's the primary application of this second point. It's believe these things. We need to believe them because it'll strengthen our faith so that we can stand firm. Far from being abandoned, Peter Peter tells us God is present in our suffering and he's at work powerfully. First, we're encouraged that evil has an expiration date. 
Peter says, after you have suffered a little while. Now, there's no denying that suffering is hard. There is so much sin and brokenness and pain and evil in this world. I think that right now, I know six or seven people who are battling cancer. People in the hospital who are sick. People who are facing all kinds of brokenness. Just even in a congregation this size. Struggles with, with the fallout of, of sin. It, there's so much pain and brokenness, and this is not at all to downplay the reality of it. But God is going to restore us, and whether he restores us in this life or the next, our suffering has a limit. And compared to eternity, it's only for a little while. I want, it's, eternity is a concept that is very difficult for us to try to wrap our minds around. Could you take the end of this rope for a second? And just walk down that aisle right there. Just walk down that aisle. I want to try to give us, hopefully this will unwrap. I want to give us a picture of eternity and what it looks like. Keep going. Keep going. There you go. That's good. Stop right there. Now, if this rope represents time, this little bit of red at the end is your life on earth. And the rest of this rope, now you can back up. This is eternity. The rest of this represents eternity. I want to try to give you a picture of the difference between your life now and eternity. The trouble is, is that the rope doesn't just go to the end of the aisle. The rope should go out the door and down the street and all the way across the border of Mexico and just keep going around the world forever because it's forever. You can't get your mind around it, but you can kind of see that this is your life here. It's only for a little while. Thanks. Thank you so much. That is why Paul says with the eyes of faith, this slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Evil has an expiration date. Peter points us to eternal glory, and that's the second encouragement. God has called you to eternal glory. We have the hope of heaven. Everything that was lost or broken or stolen or suffered in this life will be made right in heaven. And in Christ, God has determined to bring his people to eternal glory. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. He who began this work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Do you see, Peter is ending his letter right where he began with the hope of salvation. He's talking about God's elect being kept by God's power. Not only is God keeping an inheritance for you, he's also keeping you for that inheritance, as we saw in chapter 1. Third, we're encouraged that God will sustain us by his grace. The God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God will restore. He will put things in order. He will make you complete and whole. He will mend us. God will confirm. He'll cause you to be committed to Christ. God himself gives you the firmness that you need and that he demands. God will strengthen you in your weakness. 
wherever you need to overcome evil. God will establish you. This, is, this word is about a solid foundation. Then he builds us up in the faith so that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but have faith and preserve their souls. Hebrews 10, 39. Peter piles up these four terms. They reinforce each other. They're all saying the same thing. Taken together, it's a solid promise of God's abundant grace, which is sufficient to see you through anything that you suffer in this life. It is a promise that God is going to help you persevere in the faith and see you to glory. But that leads me to a question. Can God or can the devil actually devour a Christian? Can he destroy your soul? No, not if you're a Christian. He absolutely cannot. Because we have the promise that we will be kept by God's power through faith. Chapter 1, verse 5. But then that makes me ask another question. Does that mean that we don't have to be watchful and resist the devil because God is guarding us? Is the warning pointless? No, because God guards you through faith. God's power guards you through faith, 1 Peter 1.5. That is why Peter says, stand firm or resist him firm in your faith. The battle is real. No Christian says, God's got me, so that means I don't have to follow him. I don't have to worry about the devil. I don't have to fight. I don't have to battle. It doesn't matter. No, true Christians resist the devil and persevere to the end. God promises, if I called you to glory, I'm going to get you there. But it's not apart from resisting the devil. It's not apart from standing firm in faith. It's through faith that God gets you to heaven. I came across a great picture of the, of the Christian life uh, in a book that I've been reading called Union with Christ by Rankin Wilborn. I would recommend it. Life with God is like sailing. What makes a sailboat move? Is it the skill of the sailor? That makes a big difference when you're sailing, that you know what you're doing, right? You have to have some skill. But ultimately, even the most skilled sailor needs something beyond himself. He needs the wind. Without the wind, the boat won't move. No matter how determined, no matter how knowledgeable, we cannot change our hearts or make ourselves move forward. We're dependent on God's power, the wind, you might say, of the Holy Spirit. Yet at the same time, we're not just passengers sitting passively. We can't control the wind, but we can catch it. We have to draw the sail. We take advantage of all the means of grace that I talked about earlier. The spiritual life isn't like a motorboat where we're in control of the power and the direction. And it's not like a raft where we just sit back and we're carried along. It's, a, it's like sailing. The wind is the most important thing. And while we can't control it, that doesn't mean there's nothing for us to do. We labor in the strength that God provides. We persevere firm in the faith by Christ's power in us. We persevere through faith, by grace. The last encouragement for us in this text is that God has dominion. He's sovereign. 
The one who promises all these great things in verse 10 has the power to fulfill them, according to verse 11. Peter says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This little doxology encourages us that God rules over the evil in this world. God overrules Satan's schemes to accomplish his good purposes. You see, both God and the devil have purposes in your suffering. The devil wants to lead you into sin, death, and hell. He wants you to disobey and dishonor God. He wants to make you miserable, ineffective, and unfruitful. God wants to lead people away from sin to salvation and holiness and to honor him. God's aim is your joy and your fruitfulness. Verse 11 shows us, actually both verses 10 and 11 show us the sovereignty of God to overrule Satan. Yeah, he comes to try to devour your faith, but God's not gonna let it happen. God, in his sovereignty, overrules the schemes of the evil one. And it's awesome. Don't you just love the fact that our God in his sovereignty takes everything that the devil wants to use to destroy you and turns it for his good purposes. It is awesome. The devil will not have the last word in your life. Those who oppose God will not have the last word. Christ gets the last word. Uh, In the spiritual war, we have the best general. Jesus never sends us into battle without going with us. He never miscalculates and he never loses a single soldier in the war. He makes sure that even the weakest make it home. Amen? When we suffer, we're tempted to feel as if God has abandoned us, but Peter is emphatic. God himself will act. God is not removed from your situation, whatever it is. He is personally involved. He's not absent from your suffering. He's at work in it and through it for your good, now and forever. That is such a great comfort to us. Now I'll close briefly right where Peter closes. His final exhortation and suffering, stand firm in God's grace. We see this in verse 12. He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This this summarizes the message of 1 Peter. As you suffer for your faith from the world, the flesh, and the devil, stand firm in God's grace. Don't shift your hope or trust or dependence to anything else. The entire Christian life is lived by God's grace. That's how you endure to the end. In this letter, Peter encourages Christians who are suffering for their faith, right? Remember our tagline, he encourages us to remain hopeful and holy in a hostile world. How do we do that? We do it by standing firm in the faith by God's grace. Let's pray. God of all grace, we just thank you and praise you for calling us into your eternal glory in Christ. We thank you for the promise to restore and confirm and strengthen and establish us. And we thank you and praise you that you rule over all. We ask and pray that you'd give us the ability, the power to be watchful and to resist the devil firm in the faith. 
In our suffering, Lord, would you help us to trust your wisdom and goodness and love and sovereignty. And when the devil attacks, help us to persevere faithfully. Enable us to stand firm in your grace. Help us to be hopeful and holy in a hostile world. Help us remain faithful to Jesus. And Jesus, it's in your name and in your authority that we pray. All God's people said, amen.